We welcome you to the media ministries of the Gathering Church in the Countryside YMCA of Mainville. As we love the Lord and each other, we're trusting that God would use us to plant a church in every YMCA around the world. To this end, would you join us? We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and in community groups throughout the week. As you listen to this resource, our prayer is that your love for Jesus would grow deep and your love for others would be seen and heard. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 11 and in verse 33 through 36. And I'd like to read it for us. As you're turning there, just a little sermon preview. We're closing up chapter 11 today. And then uh, the next two weeks, we're going to take a little bit of pause in Romans. So if you're a guest here visiting with us, we're taking a little bit of pause in Romans. And we will be um, covering what it means to live life and follow Jesus together within the context of community groups. We're going to talk about what it means to love one another well and to disciple each other and to pray one, with one another, uh, to reach in, as we say here, uh, with our in arrows. And then also uh, what it means to, as a people of God, to reach out to the lost. And so we'll spend the next two weeks. Chapter 12. Um, that's where we're headed. The title of the message today is the goat doxology. If you're familiar with the athletic terms, goat just means the greatest of all time. Doxology comes from the word doxa, it's praise. So this is like the greatest of all time praise and worship passage. That's not a fact, that's just my opinion, but I really like this passage. So we'll get after it together. Um, There's two points. The first one is the depth of God, the depth of God. And the second point is devotion. The depth of God and devotion. So prior to reading it, let me just, let me just start out like this. Um, does anyone know in this room the deepest part of the earth? Anyone like National Geographic whizzes in here? There you go. Nice job. Yes. It is the Mariana Trench. All right, so a couple facts about the Mariana Trench. We're going all science on us here, okay? This is located in the Western Pacific, just east of the Philippines. Mike already knew that, okay? The distance down in this trench from the surface of the ocean to the deepest part is seven miles. Seven miles. As the deeper you go, darkness just entrenches in there because it's so deep. If you were to cut off um, the Mount Everest at the bottom, flip it upside down and put it in this trench, all the way down still, there would be a mile till it hits the surface. So this is a pretty deep part in the, in the ocean, in the world. The water pressure down there is a crushing eight tons per square inch. How about that? And um, it's pretty deep. It's pretty deep. Thousands of climbers have climbed to the top 
of Mount Everest. Yet historically, we know that only two people have ever plunged the depth. Their names, Jacques Picard and Navy Lieutenant Don Walsh. In 1960, they loaded the U.S. Naval submersible called the Trieste, and after five hours of descent, these two only spent 20 minutes at the bottom of the ocean, like the deepest part. Only two people ever. And they were unable to take any photographs at that part because when they landed, all this soot and dust just rose to the surface. So church... We are about to read a passage that starts off with, Oh, the depths. Oh, the depths. And this is in reference to God. And it's beautiful in that no one will ever be able to plunge the depths of what we're about to study. It's too deep. It's too marvelous. It's too wonderful for words. If you were to put a depth finder into this passage, no sort of mechanical operating machine would be able to give it a number or a measurement. It's, it's too deep. Yet the beautiful thing about when you approach the Lord and, and study the scriptures is that even though it is deep, it is accessible. That when we, we come to the word of God, that it, even though it's way beyond us, that we can, we can eat of its fruit. We can taste it. And we can know him through his word. One of my favorite quotes about the Bible is that it is so deep that the deepest of theologians and philosophers, as they wade into it, will get lost and drown in its depth. Yet the smallest of babes can wade in its waters. And so wherever you're at, if you've got a degree, or if you just came to Christ, uh, today, uh, God wants to minister to you deeply through his word. Let's read it together. This is the first point, the depth of God. And we're going to do something new this morning. I'd like us to, to read it all together, not just my voice. So I'll be reading from the ESV. If you've got an ESV, read a little bit louder than the others, because I know there will be some translation you know, mix-ups. But um, we're just going to go for it and embrace the mess. Okay? The riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, and here's the last part, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? All right, so let's start unpacking this, okay? So the first word in the goat doxology is O, O-H. And it's so easy to skip over um, because it's like, oh, maybe that's not important or whatever. Maybe it's just the sigh on Paul's part or whatever. I remember early on in my walk with the Lord, um, anytime I would be in church and the woman would lead out with a song with O in it, I kind of have this like weird feeling like, I don't know if I like that or not, right? And even this morning, we had a song where it was like, oh, which is a biblical word, right? 
But it's like, what does that mean? It's lacking meaning to me. And I've grown in my comfort to realize that when writers in Scripture use the word, oh, it's, it's a sort of like a, a groaning or a, a cry. Sometimes when I pray, I'll just start with, oh, Lord. <laughs> like He knows me. He knows what I'm thinking. And even if I don't have all the words, the perfect grammar or whatever, that I can, whether I'm sad or happy or whatever, wherever I'm at emotionally, I can come to him and go, oh. And he hears me. And he knows me. It's a great start to the doxology in worship. Sometimes when you pray, when you worship, you don't, you don't always have the precise words, but the Lord knows you and you can come to him and use words like, oh. it says, oh, the depth of the riches. So we know in studying Romans so far, it's used riches a lot. And we know that there is no greater riches than the riches that you find in Jesus, in the gospel. There's no greater depth than the love of God through his son, Jesus. And as we approach him and learn more about the gospel, we find that those riches in him are deep. Paul talks about his experience with the gospel, and he says that you can't compare it to anything. Actually, I consider all things as a loss. Other parts of scripture, he's like, all things as rubbish compared to knowing God and the depth that we find in the gospel. It's more valuable than gold or silver. It's immeasurable in nature. Scripture tells us that God is so rich that he owns a cattle on a, on a thousand hills, that he has the ability to provide because his storehouses are full. We know that anyone who comes to Christ will never be thirsty again that their hunger will always be satisfied in him, that he offers the bread of life, and that that never, never um, gets, gets left out in the pantry. You don't have to open your pantry door and wonder where it is. It's always ready and available for you to eat. I don't know if any of you grew up in the time of DuckTales with Scrooge McDuck. It's like assumed, but I just have to ask, right? But I remember George McDuck had so much wealth that he would open up his chambers of treasures and he would backstroke in all the gold coins. You remember that? Like the depth of that guy's riches, my goodness. It's like, so what? Like the, the depth of the riches of God are way deeper than Scrooge McDuck's financial accounts. It goes on to say, oh, the depth of his wisdom and his knowledge. Which is interesting, like when you ask, I wonder why he put both. Like, what's the relationship between wisdom and knowledge? I'm sure you've heard those things defined in the past where wisdom is applied knowledge and the knowledge is just like knowing stuff, right? <laughs> like knowledge is knowledge. And we would say, that God is the source of all wisdom, of all knowledge. He knows everything there is to know and more. His knowledge is immeasurable. You can't 
find out all that he knows. No explorer can go to the bottom of his wealth. No Lewis and Clark expedition guy can travel to find out what his knowledge is like. But again, I say, his knowledge is not too deep that it's inaccessible, that we can, as a believer, come to him and gain knowledge. We can gain and we can grow in wisdom. The believer becomes wise. So we can learn from the Lord, take wisdom from the Lord, and apply it to our life. And the Bible that makes the simple wise, and it brings joy to the heart. These are the things of God. I remember in 1995, I was 15 years old at the time, and I took my first mission trip to Zimbabwe in South Africa. And um, we, my, my dad and I, we went over with a basketball team, and I was the ball boy, and uh, there was a bunch of collegiate athletes that uh, came with us. And there was this one guy who came with us uh, named Eric Johnson, and he had just become a Christian, like brand new Christian, okay? And this guy, I remember a few things about him. He went to the University of Louisville, go Cardinals, and this guy had a 43-inch vertical. Does anyone know how high that is? That's a really, really high vertical, right? This guy could jump. I remember going down the court. And throwing it as high as I could. And he would catch it with his forearm above the top of the basket. It was incredible. And he had this little, little basketball note. But he had this little trick where he would push above, on top of guys' shoulders to get a couple more inches. So this guy, at the end of the day, was jumping 45, 46 inches, which is incredible. But what I, I know it's crazy, but what I love most about Eric Johnson, okay, brand new believer, was so attracted to the book of Proverbs. And I remember always walking by him in the morning, and he would always go, yo, Mike, this stuff is deep. He would always say that. And I remember that like so many years later. And it is. But this brand new baby believer who is 22 or so years old found the Lord so accessible. Yo, this stuff is deep. Mm -hmm. So if you're new in the faith, be encouraged. It shouldn't be intimidating to you. But you can, you can mine these treasures you can go into these diamond mines and, and find out the different facets of each diamond. And it will feed your soul because it's the very source of who God is. It's his character, or some would say his attributes. Let's go to the end of 33. Do you see that with me where it says unsearchable judgments and inscrutable ways? So we talked a little bit about if you're a baby believer but I know that some of you have been walking with the Lord for a number of years, maybe 10, 20, 30 years. And you know from experience, from following Jesus, that his ways are not our ways, right? And his thoughts are what? They're not our thoughts, right? I remember, you know, I just recall the story of when Israel came out of Egypt. Do you remember this story? And they, they left in a hurry. They grabbed a whole bunch of treasures from Egypt and they, they went out. They were following Moses. And there was two million of them. 
And uh, one of their first challenges was they came right up to the Red Sea, and they turned around, and then they saw Pharaoh's army charging at them. So their backs are to the sea. They look left. They look right. They don't know where to go. And so they look at Moses, and they go, Ah, why'd you bring us out here? This is unbelievable. Like, we had a better life back here in Egypt. It was smooth. It was going fine. Sure, we were in slavery, but we knew what to expect. And now, what are we going to do? The psalmist in uh, Psalm 77 tells us what happened. But before I read it, uh, have you ever felt that way? Where your like, back was to a wall? Where you're in this moment, you've got pressure, you've got things coming at you. And you were like, I was following you, Lord. And I, I, I want to do the right thing before I started following It seems like things were a lot easier. And now things are really hard. Like, maybe, maybe I would have never scripted it like this. Or maybe, just maybe, instead of following you, I'd like to take things into my own hands now. I would like to pave my own paths because my ideas seem to work out and are better than your ideas. Has anyone ever thought that, or is that just me? Listen to what the psalmist, and how he summarizes it in Psalm 77, verse 19. It says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Don't you love that? You ever look back on your life? They say that hindsight is twenty twenty. You ever look back on your life and go, I would have never chosen for it to go that way, but I would never trade it for the world. The Lord taught me so much. And wow, when my back was to the wall in this situation, I would have gone left, I would have gone right, but Lord, you took me through the sea. And now, it's so evident that you have marked your footprints all over my life. Why does he do that? He wants you to trust him. He loves when his children follow and trust him. That's our, that's our Lord. Proverbs 19, 21 says, Many are the plans in the, man, in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Let your eyes go to verse 34 with me. For who has known the mind of the Lord? I think we know the answer to, to this question. But let's just take a moment and think about and learn a little bit about the human mind for a second. So every one of us carries around about a three-pound brain inside this thick skull of ours. It's full of all squishy stuff. That's a scientific term. And it, uh, it's like the control center for your life. Like you think, you learn, you create. Every, every breath, every heartbeat is controlled by your mind. It's fantastic. Some scientists call it the most complex thing we have ever discovered in the universe. 
The brain is more faster, more powerful than any supercomputer out there. I mean, just think about it. Like, you walk into a room and you smell a fresh bouquet of flowers. And immediately it takes you back to 20 years ago at a specific time, specific experience, specific moment. Hey, no computer that I know of can smell, but also no computer can work that fast to take you back like that. Like the human mind is incredible. Your brain contains 100 billion microscopic cells called neurons. And if you were to count them, it would take you 3,000 years to count them all. And those, those neurons are moving so fast, scientists say that your brain generates enough um, power and movement and electricity to light a light bulb. Check this out. I did a little research for you. Neurons send information to your brain at more than 150 miles per hour. Which, kids, that means... Like, that's about double what your parents drive on the highway, which is going pretty fast, right? This week, some of you know this, but um, um, my family and I, as well as uh, one of our new members of our church, Alicia, went to a Christian camp in Oklahoma called New Life Ranch. And uh, I had the opportunity to speak there. My kids went to camp. And um, the night before we left, we were sitting on the nurse's station, which... Uh, uh, Alicia is a nurse by trade. She's watching on live stream as she's driving back from Oklahoma right now. But uh, one, of, one of our friends, we were all sitting there together, and one of our friends looked at Alicia and says, Alicia, don't move. You have a large spider on your shirt. Okay? And Alicia immediately like jumps up and brushes it off is is like screaming and shouting and all her extremities are like going like this right and i was thinking about that as i was reading these verses and isn't it incredible like that that sound moves at 761 miles an hour and it goes into the brain and when she heard that message that it moved 150 miles per hour through her spinal cord, to her extremities, and like that, in a millisecond, she was up off of her rocker and screaming in a pitch that we shouldn't like multiply ever, 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 right? Like that was Alicia. And your reaction should be not like, well, how big was the spider? I mean, come on, you know? And it, to Alicia, it was probably this big, right? But I think it was, what was it, hand? Maybe, you know. But the, the announcement itself was pretty scary. But your reaction should be, wow, what a brain that God has given us to move so quickly to respond to words and actions, to be able to process information and work and act in such a way. What a brain. So this is all true of our minds, right? Of the human brain. But what we have here is that Scripture is saying that the mind of God is so much greater. Like His cognitive abilities far outweigh our little brains. And yet, we, we still have, have, have so much to discover about our human brains 
We call it the last frontier. And we can't quite know the mind of the Lord. Scripture goes on and says, or who has been his counselor? Let's learn from that together. Fun quote that I like about counseling is that 99% of people need counseling, and the other 1% are in denial, <laughs> right? The other 1% just lie about it. I don't need counseling, right? We all need counseling. God doesn't have a counselor. He's never been counseled. He's never needed a, a sounding board. Hey, what do you think about How do you think I should this? All that he has done, all that he has said is from him. And it's for him. It's to him. It's through him. All things are for him. It's beautiful. Someone once said that with regards to, to comparing the knowledge of man and the wisdom of man and thinking that, that God maybe would need a counselor, they said... Someone trying to counsel God would be like lighting a candle to the sun. Personally, this really helps me understand our Lord, but it also sheds light on my need as a human, like the general need of humanity for counsel. So I'll say it like this. It is only God who doesn't need counsel. So we all need counsel. And so like a logical conclusion from this passage would be that if you are a person who doesn't seek counsel or who doesn't feel like you need the counsel of the Word of God or from, from wisdom, from, wis from wise people, then you are you're standing in place of God or thinking that you are higher than you ought to be. But only God doesn't need a counselor. And we as humans are subject to him, the great and wonderful counselor. Amen? Amen. I'm also thankful that, that God's word describes itself as a counselor. Um, in Psalm 119.24, it says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Just a great application would be, hey, this week, as you're walking with God and, and experiencing life, you'll need counsel. Where are you going to run to? And prayerfully, um, you're hearing today that the main source, the sufficient source of your counseling needs is in God's Word. You need to come to Him this week and find great rest and find, find great counsel. And there we are, that last verse where it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. One of the great summaries of the Lord, understanding the Lord and all of life. Right there. So a response so far from this passage would just be like, oh, How great is our Lord. He's so higher than I am. He's nothing like me in a sense. Maybe it would be something like, wow, the riches, the depth, the understanding, the knowledge. It makes me want to live for something bigger than myself. Does anyone else respond like that? 
There's this craving for us to want to live for something, a bigger picture than just our own life, our own situation, our own circumstances. So let's see how we do that, okay? Let's see how we live for God. Look at those last few words of our doxology this morning. This is point number two, devotion. It says in verse 36, to him be glory forever. So let's, let's milk all we can out of this verse, shall we? Charles Spurgeon once said that this verse should be the singular devotion of the Christian. The singular devotion of the Christian. To him be glory forever. Amen. I remember leading uh, college students through Romans and through this passage in particular. And I said, hey, does anyone um, just know, or could anyone translate the opposite of this verse for us? And uh, one guy said, yeah, I'll give it a shot. How about this? To me, be glory forever. Amen. <laughs> it's pretty good. Opposite translation, isn't it? So I would say there's two ways that this verse could transform our minds and hearts this week for our church. Ready? Two ways. The first way is our mindset. Our mindset. It will change the way we think about things. Quick story. Um, my wife Hannah was talking to her sister Sarah. And uh, her sister Sarah, uh, Sarah's husband Abel, my brother-in-law, uh, was sick for about three weeks. Uh, this is probably a few months ago. And um, being the encouraging wife that I have, uh, Hannah goes, Sarah, you are doing such a great job serving your husband. You're a good wife, Sarah. Great job. Because she was. They have five kids. She was like single mom in it and just like cooking and cleaning and taking care of Abel. And like, that's a big job. And this was Sarah's response. Are you ready? Oh, Hannah, I'm not doing it for Abel. I'm doing this for the Lord. And that's it, my friends. Isn't that the Christian life? That her challenges, her ups and downs within her week, what guided her mindset? He was the Lord, not for the praise or approval of men. Reminds me of Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, or whatever your hands find to do, do it unto the Lord as working for Him and not for men. That should impact our thinking in every area of life. Whether you're on the baseball team, whether you're on the volleyball team, whether you're in your cubicle, or whether you're at home, wherever you are, that whatever your hand finds to do, if you are committed and devoted to living your life for the glory of God forever, amen, then whatever your hand finds to do, that you would do it for him. What does that look like? What does that look like? Another mindset story. I remember talking to a 50-year-old when I was in my 20s. And he was a I shared this story with him. He was sharing uh, with me that, you know, all of his other 50-year-old buddies are all um, writing books. They all have their houses paid off. 
And um, they're approaching retirement at like 55. And, so, and, and he was like nowhere near any of those. But especially I could tell that he was wrestling with that idea of, have I at age 50 or so made an impact on this world? Did my life count? Or, or have I just kind of been here and just kind of lived a blah life? And so he said, you know what, Mike? As I wrestle with that, I keep on coming back to my conversion. Yeah, what do you mean, man? He goes, well, 30 years ago, I gave my life to Christ. And if he wanted me to write a book, if he would want me to do this or that, I think he'll do it in my life. That was his response. 30 years ago, I gave my life to Christ. My life is his. That's a man that is living for him. That's a man who has a mindset shift, not just like uh, me, 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 like, but he's going, to him be the glory forever. Mindset. But it also impacts, number two, your relationships. Your relationships. So first starts inside, in the mind, and the heart, but it works itself outwards. As you love God, it surfaces in how you treat and love others. Uh, I heard recently of a good comparison of two types of people. I love these like illustrations and, and thoughts about two kinds of people. Um, good friend reminded me of one of our favorite movies, What About Bob? Where he's like, there's two kinds of people in this world. Those who love Neil Diamond and those who do not, right? Well, there are two kinds of people in this world relationally. The first one, first kind of person is the here I am person. This person walks into a room and their mindset, everything that is happening in their life, their conversation, how they treat people is, is hey everybody, here I am. Let me make myself known. I'm now in this conversation. Hey, did you hear this? Well, I'm listening, I'm listening. Well, that's nothing. What about my story? My story. Me. Here I am. Brian Regan, a comedian, calls it the me monster. The here I am. But there's another kind of person. It's the there you are person. This person who loves the Lord who's walking humbly with him, enters a room, surveys the room, finds a person that is in need of ministering, that needs encouragement, that needs love, that needs a friend, that needs listening, steps into the conversation and makes the other person's stuff more important than yourself. They ask questions. They want to know more. They're not like just waiting to pounce on your story with their story. But they, they pause. They respond. They show value. There's the here I am kind of person. And then there's the there you are. And that person, as he or she parents, as he or she befriends, as he or she uh, works at their specific vocation, location, whatever, that person lives a life consistent with this verse. 
To him be the glory. How do I live for the glory of God? Living for other people. Namely Jesus, and then others. All right, Mike. So what are you saying? Just go out and do it? Like, should I just take this point number two and go, um, all right, I'll be devoted. Hey, guys, we're, we're over lunch. Hey, Pastor Mike said that we needed to be devoted to living for the glory of God. And so, um, let's do this. Let's be determined to live for His glory. I will tell you right now that sheer determination You get to lunch, you're around your family or your friends. You say, all right, Pastor Mike, man, that really, that point two really hit me. I am going to be so committed in my life to living for the glory of God. I'm going to tell you right now, sheer commitment won't cut it. Okay, but I am, I'm, I'm a really disciplined person. I am going to train my mind. I'm going to train myself I'm going to be strong so much so that every situation, every conversation, I am going to be like U.S. military, like Navy SEAL person disciplined to live for God and other people. And I'll tell you right now, sheer discipline won't cut it. What's it going to take? Because all those things... Discipline. It's all a wash if you don't have Christ. What's it going to take? Christ in you. That's it. It's going to take Jesus living and working in and through your life. You need to hear this this morning. That the cross of Christ paid for your sins. What kind of sins, Mike? Addiction, lust, jealousy, lying, stealing, cheating, anger, bitterness. He took it all and He bore it on the cross for you and I. He satisfied the wrath of God. Christ's cross also pays for the sin of pride. Thinking you don't need God. Thinking you don't need his wisdom. Thinking you don't need his knowledge. Thinking you don't need his counsel. He died for that heart attitude too. He died for those who think they're strong, but they're really weak. And that's the, that's the countercultural truth of Christianity. Here's how God likes to work. Are you ready? He really likes it when you're weak. Because in your weakness, you're made strong through Him. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in... That's right. It's in weakness. And therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest in me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
So Christian, how should you respond to this text today? Respond in sheer devotion or commitment or discipline to live for the glory of God? Those things will help and they'll come in time. But I'd like to just encourage our church to respond first in weakness and say, Lord, I need you to live like this. Lord, I need you in my life. I feel utterly incapable of living out a life towards God for his glory because I screw it up all the time. And when you come to him in your weakness, not your strength, because if you come to him in your strength and you serve out your strength, at the end of the day, who gets the glory? Exactly. You do. <laughs> Which wouldn't be consistent of to him be the glory forever. But when you come to him in your weakness, you say, Lord, I need you. I want to live for you here but I need your son to work in my life and in through me. I need the power of your Holy Spirit to guide me, to protect me, to teach me, to convict me, to comfort me here. When you identify that weakness and let the Lord move in and through it, then God gets a whole bunch of glory in your life. He loves it when his children are weak and they come to him. So the last word of the goat doxology and all God's people said, Amen. which means let it be. Let's pray together. So let it be, Lord. Let it be true of us that we want to be a people that live for your glory. Let it be. Let it be a, a situation, a church where we acknowledge that you are our great counselor, where we live with the true knowledge of God that comes through your word. Lord, that we point people to Jesus, who is the source, our greatest treasure, our joy, our crown, the one who we live for, who we've waited for. Lord, let it be that our lives would be working through us. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that when we come to him, he works in strong ways when we are weak. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.